Welcome to the Grow Through International Expansion podcast. I'm Oliver Dowson. Let me be your guide as to how businesses, all kinds of businesses, small and large, can grow, solve their business problems, increase their profits, and grow their value. In these podcasts, we talk to all sorts of interesting people that bring their skills, experience, and insights to all aspects of international expansion. I hope you like these podcasts. If you do, subscribe and keep listening every week. We love comments too. And do share and tell others and check out our resources on our growinternational.org website. One country always in the news is China. That's hardly surprising. It has the highest population of any at around one and a half billion and a unique political system that's largely distrusted by most Western countries. In the last few months alone, we've had political concerns about the treatment of its Uyghur Muslim population, tensions in Hong Kong, and now, of course, the coronavirus outbreak. Here at Growing Through International Expansion, though, our fundamental interest is global business. And right back from the days of Marco Polo, China has been high on the list of countries of interest to every type of business. In the last 20 years, trade has mushroomed, mostly in one direction. Western companies have taken great advantage of the high efficiency and low cost of Chinese manufacturing. And now, so much of our possessions, from the clothes we wear to the microphone I'm speaking into now, were made wholly or partly in China. The trade imbalance has been highlighted by the trade war that's been created by the US introducing tariffs on Chinese imports over the last year. Much of these are finished products or components that are actually brought in by American companies who've not so much shifted production and jobs rather than exploited the opportunities for new technologies for things that were never actually made in the States. That's been highlighted by the escalating concerns about Huawei and the fear that they might be building some sort of spying capability into the 5G mobile phone network equipment that they supply. Cynics might point out that their mobile phones have been sold in the West for years without any political complaint, and they've had a lot of competition. Apple iPhones are made in China. Lenovo is a Chinese company and has a huge market share of the laptop market in the West since it took over IBM ThinkPads. However, when it comes to the 5G infrastructure, there is no US company that compete with Huawei. Perhaps that's the real reason for the hubris. Some say the point's proven by news that the US government is considering funding US companies to take over Ericsson and Nokia, the only ones that might be able to catch up. It's an interesting world when one considers that the West now has a technological imperative that it's failed to develop for itself and finds belatedly that it's left it to the Chinese. Anyway, back to the perspective of international business. China always remains a great opportunity, given its market size and proven business efficiency. I first went to set up a business pair back in 2006. It had to be a joint venture in those days, and you may have listened to my podcast telling the story of some of the potential partners that I met. Having decided on my partner, though, I found it surprisingly easy to get started. In retrospect, so much so that I never asked a thousand questions that I should have done. I'm not saying that anyone was trying to deceive me, but my business would certainly have been more successful had I taken more time to understand the culture and read all the small print more diligently. I should also have talked to someone who'd done it all before, and better still, 
someone who was based there and achieving success. One such person that I've only had the pleasure of meeting recently is my guest today, Jim James. Jim's original business, and he is business now, is public relations, but he spent most of the last decade in China. He took the iconic Morgan Cars to Beijing as their founder and managing director there. Still with cars, he got Lotus started in China too. Jim also played a leading role in starting a whole string of other companies in China. You'll need to check out his LinkedIn profile to marvel at the range. Given that, I suppose it's hardly surprising that he became vice chairman of the British Chamber of Commerce in China too. But now he's back in the UK, still running East West PR, setting up a forum for older business people and, well, I'll let you tell him, let him tell you all that for himself. Here's my conversation with Jim James. Okay, so Jim, thank you for joining me today on Growth Through International Expansion. Thank you, Oliver, for inviting me on your amazing podcast show. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. Um, so you've got a lot of experience in China, and I think that's yep. a, always a country of great interest and great fascination um, to generations, but now from the viewpoint of business to many people looking at business. What can you tell us about China? Well, I think I was uh, in China for 13 years, a little bit of context. And while I was there, I um, was involved with the British Chamber of Commerce, the vice chairman. I started the British Business Awards and uh, ran my PR firm called ESOS Public Relations and also uh, started the import of Morgan Cars to China and had a quick stint as the CEO for Lotus and started the British Motorsport Festival in China as well. So a little bit of context of my, my background in China. But it was a, a, you know, a beautiful opportunity to take a British brand into China. So I enjoyed that a great deal. Uh, that was I did that as an entrepreneur. Mm. I think the thing about China from a growth export opportunity perspective is that uh, it is the mother of all markets for many categories as the world's largest car market, for example, the world's largest sports drinks market catching up with America. And it is that because it has one currency and one language. So Mm -hmm. the amazing opportunity of China is that if you get your marketing correct, then you can have the same marketing materials and the same uh, sort of currency mm-hmm. to distribute across the whole country. So that's really why China represents an amazing opportunity. It's not one country in terms of the southern Chinese are different to the northern Chinese, to the western, and those on the interior. They all display different characteristics in the same way that Europeans or North Americans are not all the same by geography. But in terms of an export opportunity, China is definitely one for British brands. Right. And of course, it's, that, it's just a huge market in its own right. It's just the sheer size. So even if you only tap a very small percentage of it, you've still got a lot of market. Exactly. Um, so, but I always found it a particularly difficult market. Um, I mean, I've run a business in <laughs> you're China. Not, you're not alone, Oliver. Everyone finds it a difficult market. Uh, the most difficult thing I found was communication, um, because even when you were dealing with people who were as fluent as it gets in Chinese, um, obviously I didn't speak Mandarin, um, and I should have done. And every time one was in one of these very weird formal meetings, um, mm-hmm. everything would be translated. And as far as I know, I would say, uh, Mr. Wu, it's a great pleasure to be here today. And I would love to sell you my product. And probably the translator was saying, last night he had chopped suey for dinner. Yes, I think that the a fundamental challenge in China is, um, is language. The 
that comes from the etymology of the language. You know, the, the very basic syntax is different. So Chinese characters are in themselves with a meaning. Mm -hmm. So we construct a word through alphabet-based letters and then we create a sentence. But in Chinese, two characters standalone have one meaning, but together have another one. The opportunity, my favorite is uh, huo, which means fire, and tui, um, which means leg. But huo tui san min jiu is a ham sandwich. Really? So just as an example, so you can have the opportunity for misunderstanding uh, comes from the language at one side, but also then there's the cultural overlay as well. So in my sure. experience over the years of working um, both in the PR and the import and in other areas, the secret to that is one, not to try and speak the language because by and large that my experience that creates almost more confusion. There are people who are great at doing that already, but also to really simplify the message. You know, I think where it falls down is where you say, I'm really delighted to meet you. And that, that may have different connotations for different people. So I think that mm. whilst we want to be culturally you know, welcoming and generous, the, ironically enough, the more the conversation goes on, the more the opportunity for misunderstanding. And what the Chinese really understand and what they're really interested in is the margin right. and the opportunity. So to some degree, we almost overcomplicate the business because people talk about guanxi and relationships, which are important. But at the end of the day, we really have to focus on, are you going to make money and am I going to make money? And right. how are we going to do that? And then language syntax doesn't matter because there's a, a sort of a macroeconomic understanding about margins and scale and purchasing and selling. So I think that my experience was just tail back a little bit on the, we're going to be friends and focusing on there's this much margin for you. There's this much margin for me and payment terms and some basic structure like that. And then it reduces the margin for error. Amazingly, it may make for less friendly Oliver, but it may make a quicker and slightly less painful business dealing. Right. Tell me, do you actually speak Mandarin? I do, although uh, my children tell me it's not very good. But I, I speak enough to get around. And when I first moved to China, I started the business on my own with some basic Chinese. I learned the numbers. That's what I oh. learned because the numbers were the most important in business. Sure. Uh, but I wouldn't claim to be fluent in any way. I didn't study it uh, in, in any long way. But uh, so I, I knew to do enough to be to sort of be welcoming. Mm -hmm. But then I would immediately go to English the minute that we got into anything commercial. But it's valuable, I think, to be able to speak and understand some of it to have a uh, sense of what's it, going yeah. on. Um, I understood a lot more than I spoke. And this was part of the key, really, is not to speak it, but to understand it. Mm -hmm. Because there were many situations where I knew entirely what they were saying, but they didn't know that I understood what they were saying. So I think if you can pick up some understanding and some sentiment, then you're fore forearmed is forewarned. So I found that communication was so important. How would you rate the chances of somebody going in to sell in China without being able to speak or understand anyone? Is it really dependent that, upon the quality of the translator? Uh, I think that the, uh, the opportunity is just as great for people that don't speak the language in their own as people that do. The key is to have a brand that's well positioned and well understood and that is appealing and mm -hmm. then to find people in the country that can help you to translate that into right. local languages. So I didn't speak much Mandarin, but what I did was I found people who had studied in the UK, who were in automotive, for example, with Morgan, uh, yes. and that then were my translators. They understood the context and the culture of the car business in the UK, 
And so when I was communicating about creating a British brand, they already had some received wisdom about what mm -hmm. that meant and were able to translate that into China. So it's perfectly possible um, to sell products. There are British beers, for example, selling very well in China uh, through a distributor who's an Englishman, doesn't speak any Chinese, but the brand and the positioning has been uh, so well received. So not speaking the language should not be a barrier. It's still an opportunity to do business in China. Great. And did you actually have an operation and employ people in China? I think you did. I've had several businesses in China. Um, uh, drinks business, the East West Public Relations, we still have the car business. And yes, I employed people. So um, I set up a Hong Kong based holding company for the car business and a Singapore holding company for the PR business and used those woofies to set up local companies and then the local company employed the local staff and was there a particular advantage in using for example hong kong holding companies well in certain industries um foreigners need to set up a wholly owned foreign enterprise right uh, in order for the shares to be held by a foreigner because mm -hmm. a foreigner can't own shares in a local company. And also then when it comes to repatriation of profits, you want to have a company that is able to start to withdraw dividends. So it's a legal requirement, really, to have a Hong Kong, or it just has to be a, an overseas. You can have a UK-based holding company with a China woofie. So yeah. it, it doesn't matter, but you need to have a, a foreign company if you then want to employ yourself, for example. That's the structure I took. I went in with a Singapore company because I also have a Singapore history where I was there since 95. Right. Mm -hmm. So I used my Singapore company to set up a China company. And then I used the China company to employ myself and give myself a Z visa so that I could stay. Right. So were you able to have that company as 100% owned or did you have to do it as a joint venture? Well, and that's, that's the beauty of the Woofie. You see, the Woofie is a parent company owns 100% of the local company. Mm. The, the difference is some of the reporting and some of the tax. So having a, a woofy has more onerous reporting requirements than a, a local enterprise does. I see. Okay. But a local enterprise will need a Chinese national to be the, the shareholder and the director, which exposes you then to some risk. They've changed it and industries are different as well. So now in the car business recently, Tesla was able to have a wholly owned factory, whereas in the past, automotive manufacturing had to be a joint venture. So these rules change so if people are going into china they really need to make sure they advise through the chamber of commerce or the cbbc on the latest regulations right because when i was working with a, a major u.s car manufacturer let's call it that um yeah. they had set up as a joint venture and, right, yeah and also when i set up my own company in shanghai it was done as a joint venture but that was actually quite intentional that it would be a joint venture because i didn't want to live there or manage it right. and i didn't want to have i didn't have anybody from the uk or the us operation to send over there to do it so i had to yeah. be arm's length but that sort of really brought up some um, significant cultural communication issues, I would say, in the longer right. term. Yeah, I think that's right. And expectations uh, mm. around what, where the value lies. And, you know, there are just too many stories as well where joint venture partners um, sort of siphoning off either customers or IP and then at some stage create their own business in parallel. So I think that one of the lessons about China really, Oliver, is that it's not the same solution for every type of company. You know, so no. there, are some, there are some companies who really don't need a legal entity there at all. 
anymore. And so, for example, if you look at talking about this beer, uh, the Green King, mm-hmm. actually now what's happening is that through JD.com, which is this large online retailer, um, the British man who owns the import rights actually has JD.com do the purchasing mm-hmm. because they do all the transshipment, they do all the import clearances. So what in the okay. past would have been necessary to have a, a joint venture or an agent in China now there are some of these companies like JD.com that in effect form a procurement department for a UK company. And the person on the ground in, the U- in China mm. takes on the role of marketing and distribution and managing the online mm. presence, for example. So there's not, there's, you know, as in with any market, right, there's not one size fits all. And I think, you know, people looking at China have obviously a number of organizations like your own uh, to help them navigate which is the right channel to which is the right channel which is the right path yeah absolutely you mentioned IP recently and uh, that's always a big issue with anybody working with China right um, I don't know whether the Chinese were desperate to copy how a Morgan was built. Probably not, I'm yes, guessing. Well, but... someone actually did try to make a three-wheeler. We saw a picture of someone oh, in, really? in China try and make a three-wheeler. Yeah, so uh, it wasn't a very good copy, but, you know. Well, maybe but... Reliant Robin style. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. But I think the point about IP is that the IP protection rights have grown immeasurably, uh, not only since WTO, in fact, that was one point of difference, but the real break point has been since China has developed its own domestic brands. So brands like Huawei, for example, notwithstanding the political implications, or Oppo, which is a a domestic phone manufacturer, or Alibaba, these companies are now taking to task anybody that doesn't protect their own IP. So what, and the Chinese car brands is another example. So what we've seen is Chinese brands taking to task those individuals or companies that are not following IP protection rules and Chinese courts prosecuting Chinese companies that are not playing by international and domestic IP rules. So I think that the wholesale sort of theft is well a thing of the past. And there are companies like Rouse, which is a British UK IP company, law firm, that has a mm-hmm. very big presence in China. Uh, and people like at the Chamber of Commerce working with uh, British companies in China to defend. And the key here really is that China has a first use, not a first registration. So companies in the UK make a, a fundamental mistake, which is they go to China to see if there's a market and then they promote themselves. And then they come back to the UK and say, I think there's a market. Let's register the IP in China. Actually, they need to register the IP before they go. It's not just right. British companies. Lamborghini had the same problem. Tesla had the same problem. So one of the key points, hopefully, for your listeners is register before you give out your business card. So I used to talk to companies that were talking to me about coming and doing public relations. And I'd say, register your brand before you send me the press release. That's interesting. And it's, and it's relatively cheap to do that through companies in Hong Kong. Bigger comes at Rouse if you're... And you can only own certain categories. You have to apply for IP protection in certain categories. So, uh, for example, Morgan is a category 38 in the Chinese registration. And um, Morgan, the name is already registered in China under category 38 under engineering. Amazingly enough, with my PR firm, I was already doing work for Morgan Advanced Materials, which is a Windsor-based company that makes gearboxes materials. Yes, I'm aware of and, them. Right, and Morgan, because it used to be a customer of mine. <laughs> right, a Morgan Advanced Materials. I wrote to them and said, I know this is a slightly strange request, but as your PR agency, can I just ask for 
you know, sort of a, a stay that Morgan Motor Company can use the Morgan name. They mm -hmm. didn't have wings, of course, and one was selling gearboxes and one car. But this is an element uh, in this particularly unique case. I happen to know both parties, but companies exporting to China, number one, register before you start to promote. It doesn't cost much. It's about a thousand US dollars to register out of Hong Kong. Maybe mm -hmm. more if you want to do more, more in-depth. And you can register the English name, but also you can get a Chinese name, which is very important mm -hmm. to register that as well. And also to register the, the branding device, wings, whatever the picture is, you can register them individually and as a unit. Right. Okay. Okay. So if you're going to export yeah, whatever it is, get that name registered, get the iconography registered in advance before giving out your business cards. Great, great advice. I wonder why so many car companies have wings, by the way. Well, I had a conversation <laughs> with, uh, when I launched Morgan Cars in, in China in, in 2013, we had a press conference. Uh, and one of the Chinese journalists asked the same question. He said, why do we have so many? And I said, if you look at the German manufacturers, they all have wheels, right? BMW, Mercedes, yes. Audi. Yes. Because they're focused on the functional engineering of a wheel. Mm -hmm. But for British car companies, whether it's Rolls-Royce, the Silver Spirit, or Aston Martin, it's about the liberty and the freedom of speed and mobility. So I think it's to do with the fundamental difference in approach to what a car represents. It's my own theory, but when I looked at, you know, the Americans have a name like Cadillac or Ford or Chevy, yes. right? They, they kind of have the name. It's like, it's what I stand for. Yeah. But I, th I think we're the only country in the world that makes cars that are based on, uh, on the essence of the freedom, the flight, the sense of mobility. So I think Chrysler have wings, don't they? But anyway, we're deviating. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that was my theory. <laughs> Interesting. There you go. We need these asides and these uh, cars. Yeah. Tell us a bit about the Chamber of Commerce and the act business activity generally in China. The British Chamber of Commerce in China is now one organization as of last year. Um, it used to be a number of different chapters across the country. Mm. Um, and it was formally uh, aligned with the CBBC, the China Britain Business Organization. Um, they now are separate, but doing very different and equally valid roles. So the Chamber of Commerce really is helping companies that are in China to network and to lobby and to support one another as they as they gain sales and distribution. So it's a fabulous organization. And, and when I was part of it, one of the roles that we had was to create some position papers. So we have a business environment market access report, for example, mm -hmm. which all the members would contribute to. That was then given as, if you like, a sort of a summary of the issues faced by the members to the DIT, the Department for International yeah. Trade, read at, led at the time by Richard Burns in, in Beijing. And that was used to go to MOFCOM, the Ministry of Commerce. Mm -hmm. So the, the chamber fulfills a role really of representation as well. Sure. The CBBC is helping companies that are perhaps in the UK and are looking to go into China. But also the CBBC is largely funded by the Department of International Trade. So they play a, a large sort of government to government role as well. So it's probably quite a good idea for new potential exporters to look at them and talk to them before actually making the trip. Absolutely. Absolutely, Oliver. So the Chamber, the CBBC, there's also the BEXA, the British Exporters Association. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, British companies are amazingly well supported if they want to reach out and they, they all represent great value for money. So absolutely. I think, I think there's a lot of support out there 
the difficulty is it's not that a lot of it's not very obvious where to find it. So even even DIT is not always a very joined up organization. I think that's something that the chamber certainly has worked very hard at uh, in the last Mm. um, couple of years. And um, and we started, um, well, I started the British Business Awards in 2008 uh, when I was in the chamber and as the sort of founder of the chamber uh, awards. One of the goals of that was to create a publicity for what was happening in China, because mm-hmm. the, the danger is that the chamber gets focused on what's happening in China and doesn't necessarily promote it because we don't always know who in the UK is interested. Right. So it tends to be if you're in China, you know it exists, but if you don't. So one of the reasons I created the British Business Awards, which people can find online, BritishBusinessAwards.cn, mm-hmm. is it became an, a, a national but international publicity opportunity. So we have the British ambassador as the patron, and we have people in the UK entering, and we have people in the UK covering this as a way to profile Ray. So I think you'll find that that's ongoing work in progress, but it's mm-hmm. a British, uh, British Chamber of Commerce in China, uh, easy to find on the internet. Awesome. Very useful. And now you're back in the UK. Um, tell us what you're doing these days. Well, we moved back last summer to get the girls to school. And it's been a terrific decision to get them back to the, our own culture. So uh, I have the East West Public Relations still as mm-hmm. a business. So we help companies that want to market themselves across Asia. So right. largely, largely China and ASEAN are the clients. Mm-hmm. We work business to business and technology clients. So that's the the main day-to-day business. And then I've also started a group called the Silver Fox Entrepreneurs, of which you've kindly joined, which is really a, a business support group for mature men with enterprise, men in their 50s and 60s who'd like to start a business or who are running a business and would like to have a peer group and, and community su- to support them as they build their businesses. Mm, I think that's a very interesting concept. Mature women as well, I guess. Actually, we're, we're looking uh, to support some of the men because there are lots of women's groups like Prime, uh, mm-hmm. but there doesn't seem to be one focused on supporting older, mature men who are either starting a business or have got one. So right. I, I saw that as an opportunity when I came back to find kind of my peer group, really, um, who are finding the Chamber of Commerce fantastic for sort of the business to business. But for yeah. some of the perhaps emotional and, and uh, personal development, a community like this may be interesting. Silverfoxentrepreneurs.life is the website. I think uh, I think it is. I think there's a lot of us around. There are, well, as we, as we see <laughs> lots of members. Yeah, I see myself either. in as well. Yeah, there you go. So. Yeah, no, absolutely. So we welcome more, people. More men who it. are follically challenged except on their chins. Yeah, there we go. I know. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> it's like gravity is too strong or something. And then... Uh, Must be that. And yeah. And in the Silver Fox Entrepreneurs, we've got, we've got over 60 members of, uh, all over the world. We have members in Africa, Australia, America. And what we're already finding is the kind of conversation that you and I are having uh, is starting to take place amongst people who are trusted and respected and already established and need someone to go to in market that can give them some guidance. Sure. Well, that's really all. Everything's fascinating, Jim. Um, listeners, you'll find links to all the things that Jim's been talking about on the page that accompanies this podcast on growinternational.org and on the pages that go with it on podcast channels as usual. And on, of course, on the Grow International app, which if you haven't already downloaded, please go ahead and find it now on the Google Play Store or on the Apple Store. Jim, thanks so much for talking to me today. Oliver, thank you very much for inviting me onto the show. And I'd love to chat to anybody that's interested in international marketing and to support you and the work you're doing. And I have the app. 
It's fantastic. So thank you very much for pulling this together and, and creating a great service for people that are exporting. Great. Thank you so much, Jim. I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation and this podcast. I really welcome your comments and also suggestions for future conversations. We post new content every week. So please do click on the subscribe button and follow this, the Growth Through International Expansion podcast. You can also find the transcript, other articles and detailed resources relating to this episode on our website, growinternational.org. There, you can also join as a member for future updates and find all our other articles, videos and podcasts and benefit from other features, including free consultations and independent online advice. Again, that's www.growinternational.org. Until next time, this is Oliver Dowson wishing you success and reminding you that international expansion may be easier than you may think. Mm -hmm.